This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. Matt, today we've got an exciting episode. We have David Eby of the NDP on. Absolutely. So the former MLA for Point Grey running for re-election and also the current housing critic for yeah. the NDP. I mean, anyone who follows real estate knows the name David Eby. For I mean, sure. He, in the last four years, basically, he's the, the voice of the opposition. Yep. He's basically been in the news Every day, right? Uh, for for years now, so uh, it was a real it was a real exciting uh, moment here when we had a chance to talk to David about his ideas on housing and the one that actually took out Christy Clark in her own riding too. Yeah, I mean, real coup, real coup, real, real coup. coup, real coup, <laughs> real super cool. <laughs> did did it? Did I say coup or cool? I can't remember, but yeah. really cool too, David. Yeah, super cool, David. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, so also uh, David joined us. We're talking about the role of real estate in BC's economy. Yeah, what role it should play, basically. I mean, exactly. that was the key question I had because, uh, you know, you get a guy who seems to be very critical of uh, the rising market here and uh, and the spinoffs in PTT, the, the, the right. amount of money it's generated for the, the provincial government. And I was kind of that's the key crux of the conversation. Well, totally. And we're a real estate town. So it's uh, obviously a really interesting topic. And another thing we should mention before we get to our interview with David is we are nonpartisan. Yeah. Um, the NDP actually reached out to us. They're on the ground level. They, they looking for mediums to engage the people. They and, knew about the podcast. Yeah, exactly. So we were happy to have them on. But we also have sent out requests to the Liberals and also to the Green Party. 
And if anyone out there knows anybody in the parties that want to give them a nudge and get them on the program, yeah. we'd love to have them on to talk about their housing platform. I think it's important that everybody in uh, in Lower Mainland really understands exactly what changes are being proposed. That's right. And at the very least, we're going to have all three platforms on our website up later today. So yeah. you can go there to check it out. But uh, yeah, we hope to have those guys on. We got less than two weeks to do so. So um Let's keep our fingers crossed. Absolutely. So without further ado, here's our interview with former MLA Point Grey and current housing critic for the NDP, David Eby. Enjoy, guys. Okay, so we're here with David Eby, former MLA for Vancouver Point Grey, running for re-election. And uh, housing critic for the NDP. How are you doing, David? I'm great. Nice hey. to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. So first of all, David, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm a lawyer by training. And I started practicing law. I was a federal uh, government lawyer, worked for the Federal Department of Justice. And uh, then I worked for a couple nonprofit organizations, Pivot Legal Society and the BC Civil Liberties Association. I got into politics because I was working with... Uh, really low-income people. People were on social assistance in the downtown east side who were living in these residential hotels. And the buildings were falling into serious decay and the city was condemning them and everyone was being made homeless. And I was trying to push city council to use this bylaw that allowed them to do repairs and build the repairs back to negligent owners who were letting these buildings fall apart. And the city wouldn't do it. And so finally I said, well, I'll run for city council if you're not willing to do it. And I promptly lost uh, two elections in a row. <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, one for the first time in 2013 in Vancouver Point Grey when I beat Christy Clark uh, in the provincial election that year. Wow. And, and you're originally from Ontario? or Yeah, I grew up in Kitchener, Ontario and uh, did my undergrad at the University of Waterloo and law school at Dalhousie. So I've been uh, a lot of places in Canada and, and uh, settled out here because, as I'm sure your listeners know, it's a great place to be. <laughs> Absolutely. For sure. Question for you, David. It sounds like housing was almost the reason you got into politics. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, it was at the time, um, it was really uh, the very low end of housing that I was focused on was that, you know, my clients were becoming homeless. There was nowhere for them to go. We were losing rental housing that was affordable to people working minimum wage jobs or who were on social assistance or disability. And now, interestingly, in the second most affluent constituency in the province, Vancouver Point Grey, I'm still working on housing. I thought when I get elected, I could stop talking about housing for a bit, but it's still the same thing. Yeah. So that was one of my thoughts. You know, you've been in the media for a long time over the last couple of years talking about housing. Is that something you hear from your constituents? Is that a lot of the the chatter you hear in Point Grey? Yeah, it's, it's really... Um, it's kind of an interesting thing because I sort of figured, well, I got elected in Vancouver Point Grey. There are going to be the very wealthy people who have their concerns and there's going to be the renters who uh, who have their concerns. And and the renters are probably going to be more concerned about housing than uh, the really wealthy people in the constituency. And, and interestingly, it's no matter which neighborhood I'm in, whether it's Point Grey or on the east side of Kitts or up at UBC talking to students, it's housing. And, and the people who are the winners of this housing crisis, whose home values have appreciated so significantly, are telling me, I'm really worried. My kids aren't going to be able to live in the city. I can't actually use this money because we're we're not going anywhere. Um, I have to pay these huge additional property taxes, but I'm on a fixed income. So it's it's actually weirdly like I feel like I've got less money, even though my house is worth so much. This isn't something that's benefiting me in any real way. And I, I wish that um, we could do something about what, what's happening with housing and make sure there's a future for the city and for my kids in this place. And that was a real shocker to me because um, I would have thought that this would be a group that would be saying, you know, don't do anything. This is great. We're winning big. 
um, that was leave my it alone as well. Yeah. So how did you uh, how did you end up focused on Vancouver Point Grey area? Um, when I ran for nomination back when Vision Vancouver was started in two thousand and eight, I ran for nomination to be one of their candidates. I came really close. I think it was seventeen votes or something. I lost by. Oh God! Yeah, it was a real heartbreaker. But once you run in politics and you do reasonably well. People start calling you up and say, we need candidates here, we need candidates there. And I got a call from the Vancouver Point Grey NDP in 2011 saying, Gordon Campbell stepped down, there's going to be a by-election, Christy Clark is running, it'll be the only election in the province, you'll be able to debate her about the issues that you care about, and uh, it'll be a really great opportunity, you want to come and run? And I said, absolutely, I want to run against the Premier, that would be fantastic. (laughs) I had no expectation uh, either that I'd be close or that I would uh, win, but I definitely wanted to debate her on some of the issues that I cared about. Also, just from a uh, kind of professional politician standpoint, good for the profile, I'd imagine. Well, I, it's not great in politics to keep losing. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. But, uh, good point. <laughs> but you're, you're right in the sense that there were some issues and there remain issues that I really care about that I uh, wanted to debate the premier on. And, and those issues I wanted to raise the profile of in particular, and it seemed like a great way to do that. And she's also known as a really, really savvy politician, right? Like on the campaign trail. So it's a real coup that you you took her out. Yeah, she um, she is very good campaigner. And I think the evidence of that was the 2013 general election when the NDP was up by about 30 points in most polls and we ended up losing that election. She was a very good campaigner. Um, I think that one of the big mistakes she made in Vancouver Point Grey was a, a retail politics mistake. She didn't show up in the community enough. She didn't move to the community. Uh, she didn't have her office open for people to come in and, and talk. And that's something that's really important, uh, not just in the community that I serve, but across the province, if if you're felt to be inaccessible as a politician, it doesn't really matter what your policy positions are. People sure. are going to say, you're not here, we don't want you. So talking about the upcoming election, can you outline some of the key points of the NDP's election platform around housing? Yeah. So the premise of a lot of the work that I've been doing is that there's a housing crisis in, in particular in Metro Vancouver, but also in different parts of the province. It takes different shapes in different places. Uh, the housing crisis is driven by a couple things. One is a real chronic shortage of rental housing with vacancy rates less than 1% in many parts of the province and escalating rents as a result of that. And then also by, um, I believe, two different things. One is uh, the use of our housing market in Metro Vancouver by investors, uh, speculative investors, as a place to store money as opposed to a place to live, and also a shortage of affordable housing supply. Government used to be involved in providing affordable workforce housing of different kinds, uh, and they haven't been involved in that since about the 90s. And uh, it's that we've been living on uh, the stock that was there for a long time, and it's not there anymore. Uh, So... Uh, these two pieces, the demand piece and the supply piece, are driving uh, what I think is a very serious housing crisis that really is going to dictate the future of Metro Vancouver and the city of Vancouver. And that's what the platform focuses on. So we have uh, pieces I'd be glad to talk about in terms of the demand side, as well as in terms of the s- supply side that uh, that I hope your listeners will be interested in as people may be looking for a place that they can actually afford to buy uh, or rent. Right. And it seems like those are the big questions. Should we be limiting demand or increasing supply right now? So should we do be doing one or the other or both? Well, the, the most famous demand side action that's been taken is the, the foreign buyer tax. You know, it was about two years uh, that I was trying to sound the alarm with my colleagues in the NDP, uh, with the Liberals about what was happening in the housing market in terms of speculation that was taking place. And they refused to acknowledge it was an issue. They said it wasn't a big deal. Uh, And then finally, they started collecting some stats and they realized, yeah, it was a big deal. Now, the problem with the foreign buyer tax 
is that it was uh, taxing people not based on what they were doing. They could have been living, working, and paying taxes in the community. It was taxing them based on what their passport said. And from my perspective, uh, the issue isn't what your passport is. It's an international city. We're welcoming people from around the world to come live, work here. Um, why are we not taxing people based on what they're actually doing? Which is, um, don't tax the people who are living, working, and paying taxes here. Uh, tax the people that are buying properties and not paying income tax here, not contributing, not participating in the economy. They're just buying a place to live. And the story I tell is about Lawrence Fink, who's the head of the largest investment firm in the world called BlackRock. And he's got $4.3 trillion under management. And when he was speaking to a conference of investors in Singapore, he said, if you're looking for a good investment, as a couple of years ago, if you're looking for a good investment, buy modern art or buy condos in Manhattan, in London, England, or in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. So this is the head of the world's largest private investment firm saying buy condos in Vancouver as an investment. Lawrence Fink is who we should be taxing and his clients who are buying condos as stocks or bonds, not you know the this nice family of uh, new immigrants from India that where the father works for BC Hydro did his PhD at UBC and they're in sure. the immigration queue. So I mean that's not where we need to be going and and that's why we're adopting a, I understand you had uh, Tom Davidoff on the podcast before we've adopted a proposal he's put forward uh, that there's an additional property tax for people who are not paying income tax here but who are buying properties in Metro Vancouver and using that money to support affordable housing initiatives. So it doesn't matter where their passport's from by the sounds of things. Is income tax the defining feature there then? For me, uh, I, I'm, I'm open to any suggestions that other people have about good markers for indicating that you're living and working and contributing in the community. But income tax citizenship seems to be a really important one, where you're paying your worldwide income tax, where uh, reflects, you know, where you're working, where you see yourself as being resident. And it seems like the best marker when you talk about an in international city like Vancouver, where lots of skilled workers are on work permits, um, the best marker for um, participation here, in my mind, is, is income tax. There might be others. Uh, but income tax seems to be a great way to determine, you know, uh, are you here? Are you contributing? And if not, uh, then you're going to have to contribute in another way. Right. Thinking about speculators, there's been talk about a speculator's tax or a speculation tax. Are you, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, interestingly, it's, um, as far as I know, it's Bob Rennie who's been putting forward some of the proposals around speculators, particularly in relation to people who uh, own properties for just a short period of time, uh, six months to a year. Um, the uh, concern that I have is uh, is one of the concerns that I have, and, and I don't know if Mr. Rennie's advocating this, but uh, is in relation to pre-sale condos. I find it very frustrating that people can buy pre-sale condos with a limited amount of money down and then flip them, uh, driving up costs for uh, people who legitimately want to buy them and, and live in them. And this seems to be an issue that's really frustrating to people who are trying to get into those pre-sale condos. Uh, so I think if there's any area that was sort of low-hanging fruit in terms of reigning in some of that speculative activity, that's that pre-sale condo activity is it um, but um, Ontario has already taken the step of, of addressing that pre-sale condo speculation that we're seeing and in an area of really short supply uh, it seems like a reasonable step to take but obviously we need to be increasing supply as well. When it comes to pre-sale condos is it a question of terminating the ability to assign the contract or how do you go about it in a way where you're not going to penalize people that actually have to sell assignments for life changes? 
Yep. Um, there are a couple ways uh, to do it. I mean, the particular uh, legal mechanism that, that you ultimately use um, could be any number of things. In Ontario, I understand that they're using an additional tax where they deem the assignment to be a sale. And so then there's a property transfer tax type charge that applies, and that takes away some of the incentive of uh, investing in that because you lose the investment value. Um, I think that there are a number of taxes where we provide exemptions for for different kinds of situations. And one of the examples is property tax, where if it's your primary resident, you might get a grant. If you're a senior, you might be able to defer. So there are certainly examples of taxes where we've been able to carve out uh, exemptions for people or applications for exemption to the tax. And that's something that you would have to do because I think we can all imagine a scenario where someone wants to buy a pre-sale condo and then loses a job or gets sick and has to assign it to someone else. You wouldn't want to be applying a punitive speculator's tax to somebody in that situation. So I had a, one more question here about assignments because I read in the Vancouver Sun last weekend, you had some quotes about assignments and speculators in the pre-sale market. And my impression was, at least from the quotes, that speculators and especially foreign speculators are driving up prices due to speculating on pre-sales and assigning them prior to completion so they avoid the foreign buyer's tax. Is there a causal relationship there? Do you think that the market is actually being driven by pre-sales? Because we have a lot of clients interested in new condos here in Vancouver, and there's literally nothing to buy. I mean, and part of that is the demand, but a huge component of that is that there's literally nothing on the market, right? The supply side. Yeah, there, there's there's nothing in my mind that suggests that what's happening in the pre-sale condos is somehow linked to to your passport status, whether it's international or domestic. But there's lots of indicators that there's a lot of speculative activity taking place in the market. Um, and I think that one of the failures of the provincial government has been their total unwillingness to collect data about anything related to the real estate market. We had to beat them up for oh, a year and a half, year and three quarters before they finally decided to even collect information about passport status for people. But they still don't tell you, is someone here on a work visa? Is someone here on a student visa? Uh, is someone not here at all? Or are they not paying any taxes here at all? Do we, there's no way to break down that group of people that might have international passports. And there's no doubt at all about pre-sales. We have absolutely no information about that. So the number one driver of the economy in Metro Vancouver is the real estate market. And it's hard to think that if we had another industry that was the number one driver in Metro Vancouver, that we wouldn't collect any information about it, whether right. it was technology or or if we were still a big lumber camp or whatever, that we wouldn't know who are our number one customers, who's buying the product, uh, what's working in terms of marketing, none of that data. And it's... Uh, it's uh, quite remarkable to me uh, the, the willful blindness of the government in, in something that that could stop. You know, if the demand around the real estate market could stop and we wouldn't even know why or who it was who was not buying anymore. It's a crazy thing. So moving on to the question about supply. So obviously there's a lot of people right now, there's the YIMBY movement, which we've had on this podcast and, and the NIMBY movement as well. well. They haven't been as well represented, the yeah. NIMBYs, but, uh, but they're that's, out there. That's, we've asked plenty to be on the show. They're just not, <laughs> just not coming. No on my podcast. Yeah. Uh, anyways, the, the point is, uh, what is the NDP's policy for increasing supply? Um, the the core in my mind to the supply argument is not simply um, that we're building more units, but what kind of units we're building. And the frustration that I have is the city of Vancouver is uh, they have a record number of housing starts, and I keep being told that you know we're not building enough supply. Uh, yet the kind of supply that's being built, uh, whether it's a studio apartment with a executive chef and valet parking, and and you know selling for a million dollars downtown. 
I mean, yeah, you're building a, a new unit of housing, but who is that housing for? It's and who does that serve? And and why are we building that instead of family housing? Is there a way that we could build housing that's actually practical for people in Metro Vancouver? And so I think that the core of my supply concern is that we need to be increasing the supply of housing that's affordable for families that live and work in Metro Vancouver. And there's all kinds of ways we can do that. So when you look at the West End, the rental housing in the West End, that was built through a federal government program that incented the construction of rental housing. It was called the MERB program, built thousands of units of rental housing in Metro Vancouver. Uh, that program was ended in the early 80s. When you look at the south side of False Creek near Granville Island, this is a huge parcel of federal land where the feds in the city of Vancouver got together and built mixed income community. They built market housing, they built social housing, they built rental housing. And uh, they had and built an amazing community. Now, it was great for the time. It's not practical for now. But it's an example of using public land to build affordable housing for people. So whether it's incenting the construction of certain types of housing or whether it's using public land to build mixed income communities, this is what we should be doing. And instead, we're selling off huge parcels of public land, the Oak Ridge Transit Barns uh, for half a billion dollars or selling off the uh, Jericho lands. The province sold off uh, half without staying involved like the federal government did. Uh, to ensure affordability. I don't understand why the government's not recognizing these opportunities when you have 33 acres in the middle of uh, Vancouver and you could be doing an amazing mixed income community. Previous governments recognized the importance of doing that for the future of the city. We don't recognize that anymore and we need to change that. So that's that's part of the way that we can address supply is to encourage the kind of construction of supply that we actually need. Why don't you think that the current government's recognizing these opportunities. Well, I've I've got all kinds of theories about big political donors, about you know the fact that certain developers are major donors to the BC Liberal Party and that they like things just the way they are. But you can also say there's just a core philosophical difference between the BC Liberal Party and the NDP and as a coalition party. And that difference is uh, that one of us believes the government can usefully be involved in producing affordable housing and one of us doesn't. Uh, the BC Liberals say the market will solve the problem for us. It hasn't. Uh, the housing crisis is getting increasingly worse. And yet they persist in insisting that the market will provide workforce housing for us. And the market is not providing workforce housing for us. So at some point, either they have to say our belief is fundamentally flawed in some way. We don't know what it is, but we need to be involved in providing this workforce housing. And they're slowly shifting in that direction in this election. But for the NDP, we've said for a long time. It's really clear about how we've built affordable housing for the workforce in the past. Workforce in the past, government's been involved and they've facilitated and encouraged the development of really great communities. And we need to be doing that again. That's one of our core beliefs is that government can actually usefully do some of these things. Do you have a sense of what, if the NDP is successful and, and these policies are implemented, what type of impact they'll have on the housing market? Because obviously Adam and I work with Tons of people that are currently buying properties at, at prices where they're stretching to get into the market. Um, and they're feeling like the housing prices have got away from them. So they're feeling the pressure to, to get in now because is it going to be 30% more expensive next year? So I guess what do you say to home buyers that have recently really? purchased uh, who have stretched themselves now and might potentially see a huge amount of uh, equity or, or a decrease in their property value? I think that one of the things that most of us are expecting around the housing market is uh, is one of three things, right? Either house prices are going to go down. A lot of people talk about a bubble. Is a bubble going to burst? What happens if interest rates go up? A lot of people sell. There's a lot of people hugely in debt. The housing market's going to stay about the same. 
which means that housing is going to be largely unaffordable for the vast majority of people who live and work in Metro Vancouver, or housing prices are going to continue to increase. Um, the role of the provincial government in ensuring any one of these three outcomes is is limited. I mean, the provincial government can do what they did with the with the home loan program to try to encourage prices to go still higher at the entry level by giving people a second mortgage for a down payment. Um, they can do those kinds of things to incent the market along. Uh, but once it starts going downhill or what it is that triggers the market to start going downhill is, I mean, there are lots of governments that have accidentally started off uh, that kind of downturn or intentionally done it. But when we look at Singapore, for example, here's a government where uh, they set as a priority affordable home ownership for the majority of their citizens. And they've achieved home ownership for 91% of Singaporeans by being involved in the housing market. And they are a small island with a huge population. The government made that a priority. And housing is still hugely expensive in Singapore. If you want to buy housing today in Singapore, incredibly expensive to buy housing there. So government can be involved in increasing the supply of affordable housing for residents. And it doesn't necessarily mean that there will be any change in the market housing price. I do think, though, that we have to address the fact that we've got a large number of numbered companies, offshore trusts, uh, buying property, and not necessarily the kinds of properties that your listeners are interested in. But in my constituency, buying up uh, houses on the west side of the city of Vancouver, we don't know who owns them, actually. Uh, we don't know where the money's coming from. We need to address that issue. We can't be a haven for uh, dark money from wherever and Transparency International did a great report about uh, needing to know who's actually buying our property. Um, but I mean, I don't think that any of your listeners are buying uh, $5 million mansions on the west side, but maybe they're. Um, but, uh, but that's probably where there would be some impact on prices. So uh, apart from just homeowners, you know, you mentioned that real estate is the number one driver of the economy here. A lot of people I talk to, you know, that are watching this election very closely are concerned that you know, it's kind of killing the, the goose that laid the golden egg in some senses, right? Like the, the liberals have benefited enormously from the property transfer tax windfalls of the last couple of years. You know, what we hear often is, and I'm sure you hear this every day because the NDP gets attacked uh, with this all the time, but there's all sorts of uh, policies uh, or all sorts of spending ideas and and going after the industry that's the number one driver of the economy. Um, you know, are, what are the concerns around that? Well, I think, you know, all you have to do is look next door in Alberta, right? They had a single industry that was driving a lot of their prosperity. They took in a lot of money from that industry um, and they didn't use the money wisely. They didn't uh, put it away. They didn't invest in things that would be in place uh, to make sure that when the industry wasn't there for them, that they had something to fall back on. And I feel that way very much about real estate in Metro Vancouver. The real estate uh, uh, issue, the crisis that we've seen, has come at a cost in other industries, whether it's the tech industry having trouble recruiting, some of the major universities having trouble recruiting the people they need because they don't want to come to a place where they can't afford to live uh, and they can get paid the same salary somewhere else and, and actually afford to live there. Um, it comes at a cost. And so when we have windfalls like the property transfer tax windfall uh, that, that's come in over the last couple of years and, and the government has these public properties that they can sell for half a billion dollars, um, that they wouldn't have been able to sell for that price before. We need to be taking that money and investing it in things that will counter some of the problems that come with the housing crisis, like affordable housing, and also investing in other industries so that they're there for us uh, when inevitably real estate shifts, because it always shifts as a cyclical industry, uh, like many of the resource industries in British Columbia. So we need to be thinking long-term about these kinds of things. And that's really the thinking that I think has been missing. So in keeping on with the supply question, what, what changes do you think 
need to happen at a municipal level in Vancouver? Well, um, I've heard a lot of concerns about um, the length of time it takes to get permits approved. I have a constituent in my community has a beautiful basement that he wants to rent out to a student in a home that uh, is already mostly rental housing units. And he went to the city to get a permit uh, and he wasn't able to get approval without getting $5,000 in architectural drawings of the basement suite. Um, and he's only going to be renting it out for six or $700 a month. So he's like, well, why, why yeah, would I bother? Doesn't make sense. Uh, and so, you know, we really do need to be working with the cities to make sure that they're facilitating and encouraging people to, to use that space in their homes that maybe, especially in my community, got a lot of aging people who could use the income from a renter in their place. Um, and uh, access some of the equity in their house by renting out some space uh, and having a suite, but they're really reluctant to engage with the city on those kinds of things. I think those are places where the province could usefully make a difference in being involved in supporting cities to have faster turnaround time to reduce some of the requirements. A lot of the city's requirements around permits are driven by concerns about liability, that the city would be sued if uh, someone did a, a renovation to a suite and then someone was injured or hurt as a result of a negligent renovation. So the province can be involved and say, look, if you have an engineer and an architect signing off, you can't sue the city. You can sue the engineer, you can sue the architect, you can sue the contractor. Uh, but So if we can address some of these concerns the city has, maybe we can speed up permits and we can uh, encourage people to build rental housing and actually rent out some space. What about zoning? So zoning is a really important question and, and one of the big challenges that, uh, that the city has faced, I think, um, because of uh, what's happening in the real estate market generally. So we have now increased speculation in areas where people think the zoning is going to change, sure. which is driving up a lot of the costs. One of the uh, proposals that's in front of us is allowing uh, rental-only zoning. So there are a number of areas where there's rental housing. And because the cities are very concerned about speculation, uh, cities like New Westminster have said, you're not allowed to take down this rental housing uh, without a uh, plan to replace and resettle all the tenants that were there. If they could rezone this area where the rental housing is, then they could allow the rental housing to be redeveloped. It would control some of the speculation from people who think they could tear down the rental housing and build condos in their place. Um, and so that's one example of using zoning as a really constructive tool. The other one that often comes up uh, people look at the west side where I uh, represent and they say, oh, look at look at all these single family homes. What a waste of space. We need to be building uh, more dense housing. I think there's all kinds of opportunities to densify on the west side and we're actually seeing them. So it's, it's a bit deceiving to drive down the street and see all these single family homes because actually in the homes, many of them have been converted into two or three suites. So when I'm door knocking, I go around the basement to the person who's living in the basement. Then I go to the front door and the front door actually leads to three doors in the house. So it's actually a small apartment building as opposed to a single family house anymore. But that kind of thing doesn't happen on the south side of Broadway. It only happens on the north side of Broadway. And so uh, we, you know, we need to be having conversations with the city about that. And I think they're moving that along actually. But it is an area where the city is responsible for uh, for zoning, and we need to work with cities to encourage that. The concern that they have, the concern that my neighbors have, and and a lot of my constituents have, is if you rezone for townhomes, for example, will everything be torn down just like it was along Granville Street or along right. Oak Street or whatever? Can be, yeah, or can be <laughs> well, not almost overnight. Be. I mean, there's so much pent up yeah. demand. So, is there a way for us to do it without bulldozing the entire neighborhood? Which I think is a fair question to ask. Yeah. Yeah, I was speaking with somebody last night in Grandview on the east side, and uh, I was actually surprised because it was a it was a uh, at a soccer game for four and five year olds, and it was a parent. And what she said, and we weren't talking about real estate. She said, "I'm worried about increased density in this neighborhood," which I found 
shocking. Um, uh, but her her concern was, we can't get our kids into the schools we want. We can't get into the daycares we want. We can't get after school care. We can't get into the sports programs. We can't get into swimming lessons. Yeah. And you know, with increased density, what's going to happen? I mean, and those are legitimate concerns, but massive. Yeah, I live in a really dense uh, community, Westbrook Village, which is the south campus of UBC. There's a lot of housing units there. It's very dense, but the infrastructure is there to support it. There's really mm-hmm. good community centers, really good parks, and we don't feel it. We've got all these spaces we can go to and, and that are fantastic. And because it's dense, there are services there. There's grocery stores, restaurants, and these kinds of things. So as long as we're keeping the infrastructure up with the density, I think that's really important right. for people. And that's an important role of the provincial government, like around transit, the transit conversation we're having right now. Okay, David, the Liberals have taken a lot of heat, obviously, for taking donations from real estate developers. This is not necessarily a question about the types of donations the NDP take, but more a question about BC being considered the Wild West of, uh, in terms of political landscape. I'm just wondering if, if the NDP gets in, are you thinking of making any changes there? This is a, a really important issue for me. I it's one that I highlight on my flyer that I uh, drop off on people's doors is that we will ban union and corporate donations and strictly limit individual donations. It's uh, really come to a time in Canada where people don't have confidence that governments are making decisions for them. They believe their governments are making decisions for their major donors. And and we need to end that. It's a very corrosive impact. And and also, I mean, when we look at the United States, we don't want to follow them down the, the road they've gone in terms of the big money uh, that's happening down there. But even the U.S. has more rules than we do. You can't donate money to a political party if you're from outside the United States. You can't donate money to a political party if you're doing business with the government. And in British Columbia, we take donations from all over the world, right. huge donations from companies doing business with the government. So they get taxpayer dollars to do something, and then they donate money back to the government. It's just we need to fix it, and we need to fix it now. And the resistance of the B.C. Liberals to fixing it is really telling, I think, about both how they run their political party and uh, how they run the province. And what about the, and it's in the news right now, the Iron Workers Union funding a couple of employees on the NDP. Is is the position that we're all both on the same field here playing a, a specific game and the rules need to change, but until they change? Yeah, the NDP hasn't stopped fundraising and the NDP hasn't stopped taking money from corporations or unions. Um, but I think if we're talking about the scale of what's happening, I mean, the Liberals have raised about $10 million and uh, in just the last year, uh, and our our fundraising goal for the entire election was uh, about one fifth of that, um, and so uh, the scale of what's happening is very different. But but there's no question that uh, within the rules that are set out, the NDP will compete based on those rules. But we want to change those rules. We want to change it, and we want to make sure that uh, that the government of British Columbia is there for the people and not for major donors. So, David, as the housing critic of the NDP, people must be constantly asking you about your current housing situation. So have you bought or sold in Vancouver in the last five years? Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's funny that you would ask that. So uh, I had a 40th birthday party and some friends did a funny speech about how, because uh, my, my wife and I and, and our son have started renting, we used to own before. And they say a lot of people think that, you know, Dave and Kaylee are renting because they needed a two bedroom, but actually it's because they couldn't find a, a real estate agent to represent them. <laughs> because at the time I was I was uh, uh, raising a lot of concerns about how the real estate industry was regulated. Um, the uh, We rent at uh, Westbrook Village in a two bedroom. It was one of the few 
few two bedrooms we could find. We were in a one bedroom condo in Kits and uh, we sold. Uh, and that was a really good indicator to me of how desperate the situation was for the housing market. I think we got like 14 offers and uh, sold for tens of thousands of dollars over our asking price. And it was to a guy who had said that he'd tried to buy a bunch of times previously and been outbid and he just wasn't going to lose this one. There was no inspection. There was no uh, anything like that. It's a it's a pretty crazy market out there. And I think a lot of people are holding on to what they've got because there, there's no other investment that pays that kind of return. And it means that it's an artificially limited supply as people kind of wait to see what's happening in the market or hold on to it as a perceived good investment. Wow, 14 offers. That's that's impressive for a for sale by owner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was a nice little place, had a little backyard. It was great, but it was way too tiny for for us and a two-year-old. Uh, we're really glad to be up at Westbrook Village. Perfect. So we got this segment called the Five Wire. Will you stick around for that? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. So favorite area in Vancouver? Don't uh, say Point Grey. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah, exactly. My constituency, yay. <laughs> Um, we, we, uh, for us with a two year old Westbrook village where we are is, uh, is our favorite place to be. I mean, all the parks are there. There's a little water park for, for as, uh, for our son Ezra in the, in the summer. And, uh, we don't really go anywhere. So the fact that there's only like one restaurant is fine with us and we can make a big mess and it's not a big deal. Um, I do, uh, miss Gastown and Strathcona and, uh, where I lived for a long time. Lots of uh, exciting things going on, a really fascinating neighborhood, good tight community, and uh, and a wonderful place to be. Um, but right now, as uh, as parents of a two-year-old, uh, Westbrook Village is a pretty sweet spot. Favorite restaurant or bar, if, you, if you're going out that much with the two-year-old? Uh, yeah, our, our favorite restaurant is Fable. Um, uh, Trevor, who's the executive chef there, is uh, an amazing chef in uh, in Vancouver and uh, and quite famous for his work. And he does a lot of work around local food and it's outstanding meals and super friendly people. So we uh, we love going to Fable. Although nine times out of ten, you'll find us at Beercraft, uh, which is like 50, 50 meters from our front door. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be your favorite bar. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's our favorite bar. Yeah. Oh yeah, favorite restaurant and favorite bar. Um, favorite bar. At, when uh, when we're on the campaign, it's uh, it's uh, still an old favorite from old Kitsilano days. Is uh, the Fringe, which is just up from our campaign office. It's uh, it's grungy. The staff are often grumpy, uh, but the nachos are huge, and uh, the drinks are reasonably priced. And it makes me feel like I'm in university still. It's great. Great. Uh, first place you take someone from out of town. Um, I think that when I. Uh, bring someone to Vancouver and they're trying to get a sense about the place. Um, what we uh, generally do is we, and it's, a, it's such a physically active city. I think that um, it's important for people to understand that sort of part of Vancouver is one of the big reasons people are here. So we go down to the the beach and we go from, you know, we'll walk along Spanish banks up or or down towards Kitts Beach um, so that, because you can see the city and you can see North Van and you get a sense of the beaches and uh, it really uh, does a job of selling the place as a, as a pretty spectacular uh Pretty spectacular city. Sure. West Side Mansion or Downtown Penthouse? <laughs> you might not be the right guy for this one. <laughs> <laughs> that question always falls flat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a good question. It's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think for our family, the fantasy of having a sort of ground-oriented housing um, is is a very real one. Both uh, my wife and I grew up in houses that had a little bit, a little patch of grass sure. and like place to play. And uh, I think the reality on the west side is is more laneway house than uh, than mansion <laughs> for something for us to aspire to uh, or or townhome. Um, and uh, and maybe that's. Uh, 
but I mean, prior to having a kid, it would have been definitely uh, a, a real nice condo, I think, uh, is the way forward. But I don't know. All, all my priorities are screwed up now. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Les Paul or Stratocaster? Oh, wow. This is really, uh, we're getting into the... Uh, we're getting There's still into the, 35 questions left. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Strat guy. Um, yeah, I, I love playing guitar and... Uh, and uh, I love jamming with my band. Unfortunately, our jam spaces keep getting torn down by their condo developments. The most recent one was torn down by Mech, uh, the a company that I used to really like. <laughs> <laughs> they're building their new headquarters there in Ontario in second, and uh, and our jam space was in the way. Yeah, it's hard to. It it, it seems almost like uh, from talking to you about all your jam, all the jam spaces that you've lost. I feel like that might be why you're the housing critic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It's just a straight vendetta. Cause they, it seems like there's an axe to grind. Yeah, yeah. totally. It's a nasty cycle, right? And it's a Stratocaster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 that's right. Well done. <laughs> well done. Perfect. Well, hey, maybe we'll leave it there. But thank you very much for your time, David. And uh, how can people find out more about the uh, NDP platform? Uh, bcndp.ca is where the full platform document is. It's about 100 pages. And uh, feel free to visit my website. It's davideb.ca. Excellent. Thanks for the time, David. Thanks, guys. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with NDP housing critic David Eby. Super interesting conversation with yeah, David. He's a, he's a he's a really interesting guy. He is. He is. And um, we covered a lot there. But what was your biggest takeaway, Matt? Well, I think the big takeaway for me and the way we tried to shape the conversation was uh, to see how the NDP plans to tackle affordability in this city, right? While not over managing the market. I mean, one thing's for sure: uh, it's a tight line or a tight rope to walk right and and that's the thing right and i mean people there are people that are concerned about government intervention in the market and i think it's it, it, it's often people think about the people that own their houses clear title on the west side who have a lot of money in their homes or somebody from out of town who drives up in a rolls royce and throws a bunch of money. i mean there's the these, country. these yeah, yeah these images out there right but, but that's the thing i mean i think what we were also trying to get at is is what about the people that have bought in the last couple of years who have really stretched themselves financially to get into the market and if there is a big change or a shift in affordability, what happens to them, the last line of people that have purchased? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's one thing. I mean, there's always risk in real estate. Everyone knows that. But if government is actually actively trying to deflate the market and we'll see a number of our clients potentially be underwater, and that's something you definitely don't want to see. Exactly. And Matt, on a less serious note, turns out that David Eby, like Brady D, wails on the guitar. Yeah. Yeah, and he's pretty good. You can actually find some of his tunes out there. Really? Uh, yeah, Braden and I actually were listening before he oh, before he graced us with his presence over that. in Strathcona. Yeah, it's pretty chill stuff. It's, is, pretty, is it pretty, it's pretty chill stuff. I heard. I, uh, I heard it was like. Uh, is it indie rock? Yeah. What did he say? Garage. He said uh, warehouse rock. Where, yeah. Because okay. he because he used to jam at warehouses until they got torn torn down and yeah. bought up by developers. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we were trying to think of who David Eby's guitar stylings most resemble. And I was thinking, you know, John Mayer, definitely not a slash. Yeah, no, definitely not a slash. I was actually thinking, do you remember G. Smith and the Saturday Night Live band? I do, yeah. Yeah, E.B. Smith and the Saturday Night Live band. He's a bit of an E.B. Smith. <laughs> He's got to grow out his hair. He's got to grow out his hair. But uh, yeah, he could he could be the front man. Anyways, Matt, uh, how can people reach you? Give me a call anytime, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at 
vancouverrealestatepodcast.com we also got the live wire on our site go check it out vancouverrealestatepodcast.com hold up nonpartisan episode oh, nonpartisan oh, oh, line yeah, oh. come on matt jeez info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com thanks Braden. and last matt you had one last thing you wanted to say before we cut for the day absolutely just wanted to give a shout out to yahel he was the hundredth review on itunes thank you very much yahel we, we we met him yesterday and uh man what a gift yeah, what a gift, eh? He's going to be, that guy's going to be drunk for weeks. <laughs> we didn't. Uh, showered I, him in booze. Showered him in booze. Anyways, it's a celebration. The one. It's a celebration. Year. So, hey, there's more if, to if come. If you want to be showered with booze, rate us on <laughs> iTunes. Uh, anyways, have a great week, guys. We'll see you next, uh, well, we'll see you Sunday with the short. Absolutely. Take care, guys. Two thousand faces for radio. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. This podcast is sponsored by Common Ground Consulting. Are you developing in the Lower Mainland? Common Ground Consulting is a development management and consulting company with experience in single family, townhouses, multifamily, and commercial developments. What I love about Common Ground, Adam, is they manage the whole development process from due diligence and feasibility reports for initial purchase of land to completing rezoning, development permits, and building permits. They streamline the whole process with strong relationships with sub-consultants and municipalities and a deep understanding of all city requirements. Common Ground Consulting. Feasibility and efficiency prioritized every step of the way. Learn more at commonground-consulting.com or 604-807-6419. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.